In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As someone fairly new to North Carolina, I have to note that all three services have been somewhat subdued this morning, and I'm, I'm learning why. Um, but I hope that if you were disappointed by last night's game, you'll find a message of hope and um, encouragement today <laughs> from the sermon or from the service, I don't know. The poet, farmer, and essayist Wendell Berry has a series of poems called The Mad Farmer Poems. And they're all about living counter to the prevailing culture and with a reverence for the world. And the most famous of these poems called Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front, he writes, so friends, every day, do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, love the world. And at the end of the poem, he says, practice resurrection. Now you may be thinking, this silly preacher, it's not even Holy Week yet, let alone Easter, why is she talking about resurrection at the very beginning of her sermon? And you would be right, except that Mary of Bethany, one of the main characters in today's gospel passage, is right there with us where we are on the cusp of Jesus' fateful entry into Jerusalem. Next Sunday on Palm Sunday, we will tell that story. And Mary has already experienced resurrection in her own family. Let's back up just a little bit. One chapter before this one in chapter 11 of John, we meet Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, siblings from the town of Bethany in Judea, just a short distance from Jerusalem. Lazarus is gravely ill, and Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. You may remember the story. Jesus loves, the gospel tells us that Jesus loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but he doesn't go immediately to Bethany. And by the time he does arrive, Lazarus has died. Now Mary and Martha clearly know Jesus well, and they both say to him when he gets there, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary weeps for her beloved brother. And Jesus is deeply moved, and the text tells us he weeps with her. Then he goes to the tomb, and even though Lazarus has been dead for four days and Martha is worried about the smell, Jesus cries for him to come out. And out comes Lazarus. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. This story is a major turning point in the Gospel of John. As we discussed in Bible study on Wednesday night, you can't raise somebody from the dead and then continue passing through crowds unnoticed. Life will never be the same for Jesus in Judea. And from that point on, a council in Jerusalem is determined to arrest Jesus and put him to death. They are afraid of the crowds that he draws and the attention that will draw from the Roman Empire and how the Roman Empire will react to these crowds by squashing any movement, destroying Jerusalem and its holy places. So they determine that the best course of action for everyone is to take Jesus out of the picture. So Jesus lays low for a while and departs the area. 
But then he turns to Bethany for this dinner that we read about today, this dinner at Mary and Martha's house. And very soon after this, he will head into Jerusalem amidst the waving of palm branches and then to the cross, as we know. And so we come back to Mary in this particular moment, this moment between the resurrection of her brother with the shadow of the cross looming over their path forward. And she chooses in this moment to bring out her costliest perfume, a treasure worth about what a laborer would make in an entire year. And she cracks open the jar and anoints Jesus' feet. In this extravagant, lavish gesture, the scent of the perfume that she releases fills the whole house, filling the nostrils not only of Jesus, but of the recently raised Lazarus, of Martha who is serving the meal, and of all the other disciples present. It fills the room. It is good for us to remember that anointing was associated both with the anointing of kings and with preparing a body for burial. So in this one action, Mary is both recognizing who Jesus is and that his death is imminent. While other followers of his, we know, struggle to grasp what is about to happen and don't want to believe it or think about it, she recognizes it. And she's with Jesus in this moment. She takes this moment to both recognize what will happen and to live into what he is always instructing them to do, even in his absence. Love and serve. Love and serve. So here she is, loving and serving. She anticipates the instruction he is about to give in the, to the disciples in the very next chapter when he washes their feet at a different supper. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. After all that life has thrown at Mary, and we only know a fraction of it, or maybe because of what life has thrown at her, the death and then the return of her beloved brother, and now the impending loss of this beloved Jesus, she chooses in this moment to act with tenderness and love, to cherish and to care for Jesus before he walks that road to Jerusalem, to hope and believe that she will see him again. And Judas, oh, poor Judas. He's missing the moment completely. For him, it doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. Why was this perfume not sold and the money given to the poor, he demands. The text includes an aside to let us know in case we didn't catch on that Judas doesn't really care about the poor, but he does care a lot about that money. And Jesus responds in a way to him that makes clear that both caring for the poor and what Mary is doing can be important at the same time. Mary's extravagant care models the kind of love that Jesus teaches. The kind of love that just doesn't compute. God's love so rarely does. You cannot add up all the things that we do to deserve or not deserve love in one column and come out anywhere close to how abundantly and extravagantly we are loved in return. 
To try to compute it or calculate it misses the point, just like Judas is missing the point here. It is not the result of any calculation, but simply the extravagant nature of love. That's what love is like. That's the point. For Mary, what she can love right now, what she can do is to care for and cherish Jesus right in front of her in this moment. She can care for the fragility of his human flesh while also honoring that he is the son of God giving himself for the life of the world. She could turn away or pretend like there isn't loss coming, but she doesn't. She does what she can. She offers what she has, her precious gift, in this moment. And we too can follow her example by offering our reverence, our gifts to God by loving this world, what is in front of us. This world that so often breaks our hearts or seems nonsensical or makes us mad with every news cycle and doesn't always seem to deserve that love. This world that God nevertheless loves so much. To show care when we are able for those who may not be able to pay it back. To love those that others easily overlook to cherish what won't last forever, to add kindness and empathy when it could transform a situation, to hope and even to expect new life in the face of loss, to seek and serve Christ in all persons, to practice seeing the way that God sees. To love the world is to participate in the love that Jesus shows us. To love the world is to love the Lord. So love the world in the ways that you can, right now, in this moment, with what's in front of you. And I don't mean loving the world and infatuated with worldly goods like new iPhones or credit cards or whatever, but loving the world in the way that Mary models for us. Adding beauty without regard for its utility caring tenderly for something fragile or fleeting, doing something that doesn't compute, loving extravagantly. Or as Wendell Berry puts it, love the world, love the Lord, practice resurrection. Amen. Amen. Amen.